Thomas Fat Tommy Harrison. How you doing, sir? How you doing, brother? Doing pretty good. Thomas Fat Tommy Harrison is an entertainment industry veteran who matriculated through the institution of hip hop as a protege, director, vice president, and now president under the direction of pioneers like Rick Rubin and A.D. Washington. Okay, Mr. Harrison, so people who don't really know you, let's take it back all the way back, okay? How far back? All the way back to your kid. How did that start? How did you like growing up? Well, my mom and oh, he said how it started. I was gonna say my mom and dad went out on a date, apparently, allegedly, and ended up getting married. And uh, let's see, I have an older sister, Sonya, who got here first. Then on uh, October fourth, nineteen sixty-five, I arrived. Um, I was born in Martinsville, Virginia, uh, but we quickly moved to New Haven, Connecticut. So. From my childhood, I just remember New Haven till I was 13. So until 1979, I lived in West Haven, Connecticut. Um, from there, I moved every year in high school. I went to a different high school. I went to um, E.C. Glass in Lynchburg. I went to um, Laurel Park in Martinsville. I went to um, Manchester in Chesterfield County. I graduated from Manchester, actually, in Chesterfield County. So I graduated from Manchester, went to the military after graduation, Air Force. Um, got out of the Air Force, um, came back home, was in Richmond in the early 90s, 1989, 90. Uh, right about the time that crack exploded on the scene, I was uh, here in Richmond, and Richmond was leading the nation in murders. Mm -hmm. And I was running around the streets, in and out of clubs, hanging out, um, and ended up moving. I left, um, I had worked all summer and um, saved money. I was going to have my own TV show. I thought I was going to be the next Arsenio Hall, the next uh, Johnny Carson, or I guess y'all would say, um, not even David Letterman, who's on there? Like um, Jimmy, Kimmel. Jimmy Kimmel. I was going to be the next Jimmy Kimmel. Um, we had Arsenio. Um, I worked, saved up enough money to buy all the equipment, um, and I was going to go, I moved to Dallas to go to the Art Institute of Dallas um, for video. Um, I transferred from Dallas to Atlanta um, because when I got to Dallas, the video program, I was a, basically an audiovisual media specialist in the Air Force. so. Everything, or a good portion of what they were trying to teach me at the Art Institute, I already knew as it related to video. So I transferred to Atlanta, um, and I was taking music business courses um, because I, needed, I wanted to learn something. I was paying, so I said, hey, I'm going to go to Atlanta, take these music business courses, music recording courses. Um, and at that time, uh, L.A. Reid came and started um, LaFace Records in Atlanta. Uh, a friend of mine who I went to high school with had moved to Atlanta and now he was there uh, dancing. He was a dancer, so he was dancing for LaFace Records um, for a group called Damien Dame. Um, uh, the day I got there, he gave me the keys to his car his apartment and said, I'm going on the road with Damien and Dia. You know, they were going to uh, California for Soul Train. They were filming the Soul Train. So he was about to be gone for two weeks on a promo tour. And so he left and left me there with his car in his apartment. And that was the beginning of me in Atlanta. When I got to Atlanta, um, I met Dallas Austin, um, the Lumberjacks, everybody. The, the who's who of Atlanta at that time was pretty much Dallas, Austin, Pebbles, Babyface, L.A. Um, Deion Sanders had just got to town. He was playing for the Braves and the Falcons. Uh, Dominique Wilkins had a, a nice club down there called Club Dominique's. So I was traveling in, in the circle, that circle of people going to the club. I always was a club head. So when I got to Atlanta, I was in every club in Atlanta, you know, um, just partying and just hanging out with uh, uh, the stars, I guess we should say. Um, I started promoting records. A friend of mine, the same friend Greg, came back. He had a, a buddy of his owned all these nightclubs, um, one of which was the Phoenix nightclub. Uh, 
he wanted to make that a hip-hop club, so we did all the promotions, Nubian Entertainment. We formed a company, me and my uh, friend Greg formed a company, Nubian Entertainment, and um, we had the promotions gig for the clubs. So we promoted the uh, Phoenix uh, nightclub, and it became uh, legendary. If you go to Atlanta and say the Phoenix, you know, that's like in the 90s, that was the spot to be. Um, what ended up happening was uh, Julius got murdered in Detroit. Um, it turned out that Julius was, uh, uh, I guess what I would call a drug kingpin. He was, they said he was making a million dollars a week selling drugs. So um, at that time, the people who were left after he died were basically uh, arguing over the ownership of some entities. And a lot of people were basically getting killed. And so I came back to Virginia. I was like, you know, I was going home. So I left, came to Richmond. Um, at the same time, a friend of mine I went to high school with told me she knew a guy who worked for BMG, Bertelsmann's Music Group. So uh, Bertelsmann was one of the big distributors. They had the Circuit City account. I met him at her wedding. He told me he would train me. He trained me um, in marketing for a record company. And just through hanging with him and talking to him, he said, um, you should be a record promoter. So I looked up what a record promoter does. So a record promoter was just, was an individual who had connections in the club and um, on radio stations. Um, and I was trained already at retail, so I knew the retail side of the music business, how to get records in stores, how they purchased them. And now I learned the promotion side. Um, just putting out posters, putting up posters, making sure DJs like it, just getting it really hot in the streets. So that became my job. Um, that was 1992. Um, I worked, uh, let's see, Tribe Called Quest, um, Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, uh, the Wu-Tang Clan, Outkast, Goody Mob, uh, D'Angelo, Usher, TLC. <laughs> I believe you said Outkast when we were in class. Outkast, yes, definitely Outkast. Uh, Outkast, um, Outkast, they have been my first real check. They were. Outkast, Southern Playalistic, Funky Cadillac Music. Um, first album, first record, Player's Ball. It was on a Christmas album. Uh, it came out over the Christmas break. Um, I worked that record. That was, that changed, I, that you could actually say that changed my uh, trajectory because prior to that I was working records but I wasn't really getting paid. Um, and then when I worked Outkast, I got a, a nice check for that record. Um, um, well, when you promote records, you don't really work with them. Um, they, when they come to town, you have to uh, take care of them while they're here. So my market was um, Richmond, Raleigh, Greensboro, and Charlotte. So when they came to Richmond, I would take them all around to the radio station, to the record stores, um, to the club, wherever we're gonna go to schools, whatever, to Virginia State, actually they came to Virginia State. So to Virginia State, um, what was he like? Um, so I didn't work with him on a day-to-day, -day, but the, the times that I spent with him, uh, Andre is really cool, um, very quiet. Um, I, I don't want to say soft-spoken, I want to say chose his word, chooses his words wisely. You know, when he says something, he's really saying something. He's not usually just talking for the sake of talking. That would be my memory of him. I think um, me and Big Boy had a closer uh, connection just because the day that I first met them a friend of mine uh, picked me up and he had a drop top and a, and a pit bull and so big boy loved dogs so when we showed up and had the dog he always remembered me from the dog I believe is why he me and him were closer but yes Andre I would say love him to death good energy good spirit good dude And the crazy thing back then, Andre quit smoking weed. I remember when he quit. 
Andre quit smoking weed and became a vegan. Um, and you're talking the early 90s. This was probably 92, 93. You know, he had already, he had stopped smoking and was a vegan, was completely in the health. It's probably why he looks so good now. So, I would say, from what you've told us before, Eric's director was kind of like your big, where you had the most impact, am I right? Um, Arister, I would say, um, sold the most records. When I was at Arister, they were probably the number one. I mean, we had, we had Biggie and Outkast, you know. We had Puffy, we had TLC. When you have TLC, Tony Braxton, Whitney Houston, Biggie, TLC and Usher, you really winning. That's what you call winning. We was, we was really winning. So at Arista, you were the national director of hip hop promotions, is that correct? That is correct. Okay. So what type of stuff would you do as a national director of hip hop promotions for Arista Records? Um, so the main gig is to really be connected to the streets, um, to really take care of the grassroots promotions, making sure they're, um, they have a presence um, in nightclubs to make sure that the DJs are playing the record. I mean, that, the, the real job is to get the record played by the DJs. That's, that's the job. If you are a national promotions person, you're trying to get the job played at radio and broken the streets. So if, if you're lacking in either, you know, you need to either have one or both. And sometimes records were hotter in the streets and they weren't as hot on the radio. It took a minute, you know. And then a lot of times records were hot in the, at the radio but wasn't necessarily hot at the clubs. So were you also CEO of Fat Timing Promotions at this time? Uh, Fat Timing Promotions um, when would have been before I worked at Arister, uh, right up until I worked at Arister, because at, at Warner Brothers, everyone let me keep Fat Timing Promotions until I got to Arister, and then they wouldn't cut a check to my company uh, and me. When uh, uh, Warner Brothers allowed my company to still promote records. So, so Warner Brothers before Arister? Yes, sir. Okay, so let's go back. Let me start with Warner Brothers then. Well, Rick Rubin was before Warner Brothers. Okay, so Rick Rubin. Let me start with Rick Rubin then. Okay. So, um, and Fat Time and Promotions was before that. Okay. So okay. Fat Time Promotions. Let's go to Rick Rubin. Now. Okay. So Rick Rubin, what was he like? Did you enjoy your time with him? You guys took close. Um, I would say that, um, from a company standpoint, I think Rick Rubin, uh, was the best employer I ever had when it comes to, um, health. Um, he was very much into um, natural stuff, you know, like you're talking, this is the 90s. So he was, he was very much into um, acupuncture, massages, like if you worked at, at, at um, American, um, you could get a massage on Fridays and he would pay for it. Um, he would have a, a masseuse come to the office on Wednesdays and give massages to the employees. Um, so these are the things that uh, Rick would do. I mean, he was a really cool dude, mellow, laid back. We've seen him, though. It seems like, kind of like a hippie type of dude. So, uh, mm -hmm. Yep, that would be a good description of Rick. And I mean, uh, at a record company, these people don't come to the office every day. So you don't, I, I would see Rick maybe once a week or twice a month. Well, as the National Director of Promotions, it says that you would have to maintain relationships with DJs to secure radio spins. So what type of stuff would you do to make sure that DJs play what you want them to play? Um, well, I'd like to say there was a magic formula, but I think the, the, the true magic was in the um, records that uh, I was working at the time. I mean, I had a Wu-Tang record. At, you couldn't go wrong with Wu-Tang, and then you have an Outkast record, you know. All you had to do was show up with an Outkast record, you know. What you really had to do was um, make sure you got it to the DJs as soon as you got it. That was the real catch. The real catch was as soon as you got 
the vinyl, you had to get it to the DJs fast because they wanted to play it first. So you had to get it to people in a timely fashion. That was that was the gig. The gig was get the record out there, get it to people. A lot of people would um would do um, DAT releases. They would get DAT tapes and send out early releases of records. You know. Um, special releases, you know, acapellas, certain things, instrumentals, they were, DJs always wanted something special, so you were constantly running around uh, feeding them just new records. And the more, the more good records you had, the easier your job was. The, the, the uh, con more consistent you were, because if every week I brought you a hot record, a hot record, and a hot record, then you know they're they're checking for you. You know when you show up. Oh, what you got this week? You know, so that became um, the game. So when it comes to accomplishments, we've seen your plaques. You brought them in the class. The Wu Tang Outcast stuff like that. What would you say is your biggest accomplishment being in the music industry and what you accomplished so far? Um. I would say the, the DJ Cool record. The reason I say DJ Cool is because DJ Cool's record, Let Me Clear My Throat, was a year old when that record was given to me. Um, and so I believe I did something that's never been done before until I did it, and I don't think it's been done again. So a, a record has what's called a, a, a shelf life. You know, just like you, when you get milk in the store, say, you know, Best Buy, the 5th of April or whatever. Well, when you put a record out, um, the record runs a course and then it's over. Um, and then what happens at radio is they put it in recurring. So basically, if your record was a hit last year, then they'll play it, but it's in a recurring, it doesn't just play every hour. Well, DJ Cool's record um, was a hit in, from Baltimore to North Carolina, um, we'll call it I believe it was 1994, but it was a hit in Richmond in that area in 93. So when I got to Warner Brothers, well, the American, Rick had signed DJ Cool, and he bought a record. Basically, the record was Let Me Clear My Throat, and that was what they were going to put out. That record was a year old. I took a record that was a year old. We wrote a marketing plan and we put it back out again. Went all around and got all the stations to come back, play the record all over again. Um, and I passed it to the pop part department with flying colors. So that I don't think has ever been done before. When we last spoke to you, we brought up that you had seen a lot of weird stuff during your time in the industry. If you're comfortable sharing what was the weirdest moment of all that you saw. The weirdest moment I saw. Of course, I will never share the weirdest moment, but we'll think of some moments. Well, the weirdest moment. I would have to come back to that question. Uh, marketing aspect, um, just a general question, how would you compare artists now in today's, you know, uh, society when it comes to artists dropping and marketing themselves, how would you compare it now with social media to back then when you had to do everything um, hard work and great? I think um, it, it's a double-edged sword. Um, it's made it easily accessible for everyone, which made it too easy and accessible for everyone on both sides. Like, there's way too many artists. It's too easy for you to say you're an artist now. Um, it's too easy to um, say you're an artist, but then it's, which makes it too hard to become an artist. And what I mean by that is, um, Back in the day, you had to 
spend a lot of time and energy to even make one record. You know, you had to go to the studio, it was gonna cost you a lot of money, you had to save, you know, you had to put in work, and then when you went in there, you put your all in that one record. And then, you know, to get it pressed up and get it to vinyl to the final product, that was a long, hard process that took thousands of dollars. So with that, a lot of people um, get uh, uh, fall out, you know, just because they, they can't get through the process. You know, they can't get the money to get the studio, they can't get the record mastered, they don't have money to get a vinyl, whatever. That, that just gets them, they wash out. So there's less people that actually get to the end, you know, with an actual product. And then when you get to the end, it's did they do it right? Is it labeled right? Um, do we have a clean, do we have a radio edit for radio? You know, all these things. So when you finally got to the end, did you do it right? So then once you've done that part right, now you have to actually get it played. Do you have the connections to get it in clubs? Do you have the connections to get it at radio? How can you develop um, a following? So these were the steps and what it did was it, it got rid of a lot of people who didn't deserve to be there. You know, truly only the cream rise to the top. So now you have a situation where it's very accessible. You know, and you would think that now if you have a, a outcast or a, a goodie mob or, or a, a biggie and you give them social media that we have today, it would be much easier for them to make it to the top. But then there's so many more people now. There's so many more fish in the sea because it's not just Biggie, it's nine million Biggies, you know, it's, it's, it's nine million outcasts, you know, or not necessarily outcasts or Biggies, but it's nine million other individuals that, in the same vein that you can put it up. So now you gotta find them out of the millions. That, that in itself uh, makes it harder for an artist because now, um, anybody with $20 on a computer can make a record. Right, right. Uh, so then the labels, in turn, still have control. What was supposed to free artists really don't because now the labels still have the budgets, the labels still control, like before they controlled radio, now they control social media. So the major record companies are, are still there, so nothing I think what truly changed is the independence because um, in the 90s, a lot of artists were, were funded by the streets. So um, those dudes or the individuals that put up the money were, were what I would say A&R. They recognized real talent. They put their money behind it and they got them to a launching pad. Well now, you know, you no longer have a need for thousands of dollars. So it's easier to launch yourself, which means the labels can now pick and choose who they want. Because now, rather than have um, a biggie who has got a mission and a thought process of how he wants to go, you have to have a, uh, you could have a Billy who says, well, if biggie won't do it, I will. See, because the label ultimately wants someone that they can control. It's like a job. It's a job. So when you go to work, uh, McDonald's wants you to make the cheeseburger the way McDonald's wants you to make the cheeseburger. They don't want you to come there and make it your way. Um, and that's the difference in the, in the music business today because now if, if I go there and say, I don't want to rap, I don't want to do that, I want to do this. They say, well, you don't worry, we'll take him. Right. And that, so that's the biggest difference. Would you say it's sort of like a puppet and a puppeteer thing? Like the record labels being puppeteers, controlling, you know, these random people that are coming in, calling themselves artists? I would say almost every industry that we can think of is a puppet, puppeteer industry. Um, Yes, in, in Hollywood and in the music business, but I don't think it's any different in any forms of entertainment, from the NBA to the NFL to Major League Baseball to movies to music. You know, they all, the, the, the difference now, especially in music, is that they all just have glorified jobs. Uh, the, the, only the, the, the very tip of the 
top are really making money um, at it. Like that's that's the number. The 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 challenge to keep music moving is for the bottom of the uh, um, totem pole to have access to the same thing that the people at the top have. And then in getting that access, what, what I would say now is, you all right here, you have a podcast, you can find an artist, but can you make that artist? We have to begin to control the outlets, like the distribution channels, the social media outlets. Like if we can't control social media, if we don't have a voice in social media, we won't have a voice in social media. We won't be able to determine that we like Kendrick Lamar over Eminem or Gucci or whoever, or that, or that we, we don't need this one. Uh, we don't want drill music, or we don't want whatever the new music is that is uh, counterproductive to us. I think um, the biggest difference that we had from my generation is we had a balance. I mean, um, it's going to be dudes that's going to make thuggish, ruggish, drug, gangbang records. Like, you know, we had that. Ever since you, ever since you had hip-hop, you're going to have somebody, you're going to have the, the drug and the street element. But with that, for every NWA, we had a public enemy. You know, for every Jay-Z, we had a Nas. You know, now the music seems to be one-sided. It seems to me, from where I sit, that it's a lot more buffoonery. Um, it's a lot more people being taken advantage of because if, if you're going to do this foolishness, I think it should be a, a dollar associated with it. It just doesn't seem to be as much money as it used to be. Um, they figured out a way where we end up broke again. And by we, I mean those of us that are on the bottom that aren't willing to be the 1%. Because the 1%, 2%, or whatever they are, they control 98% of the wealth. When you have 2% of the people controlling the majority of the money, then they control what we consume. What we see. What we consume, whether it be visual, whether it be what we hear. You know, they control everything. Imagine if I could control what you ate, what you saw, and what you heard. I could give you all the money in the world. And then you give it right back. And that's what they do. I mean, how many of us profess to want to be an NBA, the NFL, or a rapper, or a dope dealer to get out the hood and to help the neighborhood? That's the number one story that everyone say. Number two is I'm doing it for my kids. That's the, number one, I'm getting out the hood. Number two, I'm doing it for my kids. How many examples of that do we actually see? Because when we get out the hood, because I can point to a, a bunch of us now, at least a um, hundred of us, that are millionaires. So that means we got a hundred million dollars. And we don't have a distribution channel. We don't have a, a string of hospitals. We don't grow our own food. We don't go and get, uh, um, um, well, Master P, thank you, Master P, he getting us some rice. But I would dare to say that he's probably, and not to slight him, but it's probably a licensing deal where he put his name on rice as opposed to him actually growing the rice. Well, what, what I'm talking about is we need to grow our own food. We need to, in order for us to ever make a change in the world, um, we have to own land and we have to be able to feed ourselves. If we can't feed ourselves, we will we'll never be in charge because if we look to uh, the oppressor, to feed us, then he gonna give us the scraps forever. That's just what it is. So until we break out, until we figure out what our, our, our real power is, and that's our power comes in our unity. And that's why it's so important, even at a, a, a HBCU, you know, you all at HBCUs, um, try and unite your campus behind one thing. I don't even care what the one thing is. Because 
until we can become one again, we're going to be broke. So we have to have examples of us coming together. And a, a HBCU is an ideal place because we're already together. So now while we're there, can we all agree on one thing? Like, let's, let's make a rule that we're all going to say we're going we're gonna to hold it down. Like, how about we as a people decide that we're going to say we don't shoot at schools or playgrounds. Let's go with playgrounds because we don't shoot at schools anyway. Um, <laughs> we don't shoot at playgrounds. Like, can we adopt that? Can we adopt as a people? And then everybody at the university starts putting it out in their neighborhoods. Yo, anybody that shoot at a school, that's, that's above the, the no snitching rule. How we, I don't even know how we adopted this no snitching rule. But we need to adopt some rules that go. Like, if we can handle that rule, then we can handle, okay, we won't snitch if you don't do this at a playground, if you don't do this at a school, if you don't do this when a child is present. Because if we don't start standing up for ourselves and our community and doing stuff together for us, then, you know, we're going to continue down this path. It's never going to get no better, no matter how much social media, art, or anything that we have. Do you think snitching is doing more damage? Well, no snitching. Do you think the no snitching rule is doing more damage or more help towards the black community? Um, I think as a policy, it's doing more damage. Like, okay, I'm with no snitching, but that's because we have to def make, define these terms. And so if me and this couch go commit a crime together, I'm going to be mad if the couch tell on me. But if me and this couch go commit a crime and you see it and you call the police, that's not a snitch. That's, that's called being a good citizen because you're in a community where you don't want crime. If someone breaks in your neighbor's house, you're supposed to call the police. That's what you're supposed to do. If you live anywhere outside of our community, that's what you're going to do. If you live in any of, these, any of these places that everybody aspires to live and we want to get out of the so-called hood and get into the, into the suburbs, that's what they do in the suburbs. They call the police. So I would think that, that snitching does, no snitching rule does us more harm because we've taken it, you know, too far. No snitching. If I see you punch a girl in the face, not only am I supposed to pull you off of her, I'm supposed to hold you till the police come there. You shouldn't have punched her in the face. Like, you got to go to jail for that, bro. That's just wrong. We, we, the no snitching has, has went too far. Uh, Criminals know that they are playing cops and robbers. You, that's what's going on. The criminals know that they are committing crime. And part of them knows that you're supposed to tell unless you're involved with the crime. If you're not involved with the crime, you're not snitching. You're a good citizen. Now, I believe the rule stems from when we, when we were young, people would do stuff like, there were no Walmarts, but let's say it was a Walmart. And let's say somebody goes to Walmart and steals a case of variety pack of potato chips, right? And they come back to the neighborhood and give them to all the kids. Then a police car pull up with a manager from Walmart and they say, did somebody see somebody? Then no one would see anything because that was like a Robin Hood crime. It wasn't a crime that it was definitely against the law, but it was stealing from the rich to give to the poor. So when they say it was no snitching, it was when two white dudes came in and, and attacked a girl on the streets of the neighborhood, and you happen to know who did it. And so late one night, you happen to see that person, and you bust them in the head with a bottle, a pop bottle. And the police came looking for the people that did that. That's when nobody would tell. But when you're running around here robbing people in your community, stealing from your community, causing harm in your community, then the community has to turn you in. I mean, we, we, are, we are civilized people. You do realize that, you know where the word civilized came from? When you go civilization, that was us. You know what I'm saying? When you look back at civilized nations, that was us.
see and if we are no longer having, being the moral compass for even us, that, that's a major problem. Because we set the standards for the world. I would say the universe, but we set the standards certainly for the world. When people look back, when they visited um, Africa or Egypt or Thai Mary or whatever you choose to call it, Kush, when they visited these places, Thai Mary means land of the gods. When you look on all these channels, they believe the Spaniards, I can't remember which one came and, and wrote and said they die like mortal men. Prior to that, they didn't believe they could kill us. They thought we were gods. If you go back, I don't know if y'all read uh, Homer, the Iliad and Odyssey in your school, but okay, so if you read that book, then that was the first book. That's when the European, the Caucasian, can't even call him a Caucasian because he's not from the Caucasus Mountains, but that's when the European um, came into written history. That's his first book. Like when I teach my class, Sugar Hill Gang is when our first commercially successful hip hop record. That's when we entered the game. When they wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, that was their first books. That goes back 5,000 years. When you read that book, Homer says in the Iliad, he says, the Greeks got everything, including their gods, from Egypt. Mm -hmm. So. Right. So when I watch all these channels and I see the History Channel and they're talking about Greek gods, all I do is figure out which god, which African god they were talking about and, and replace them. Um, we were here, we civilized the world, and now we're acting uncivilized. We're acting like savages. It seems that the industry is very complex when it comes to breaking down numbers. So if you could for everybody, tell us how the pay scale Wow. Uh, so it is a very complex formula. I mean, right now I'm trying to figure it out, um, how they pay them for streams. So my closest, uh, um, I guess the closest I could get is a, a 000129, I believe it's what it was. But basically, um, the last time I checked, it took 1,500 streams was the equivalent of an album, okay? So, uh, which is ludicrous to me, but that means if somebody played my record, streamed it 1,500 times, I got what would be back in the day. So let's go back a minute. So in the 90s, um, Michael Jackson, and we're going way back, so I hope my memory is correct. Um, I believe Michael Jackson was getting 75 cents an album. I don't think he actually ever made it to a dollar. Back in the day, the, the, the best, the, most artists were getting between seven and 12 cents a record, okay? Records were selling retail for $14.99. They were selling um, wholesale for $6.99, $7, something like that. Um, so the label was selling them for 450. So they were paying on four dollars and fifty cents. So um, for every four dollars and fifty cent, uh, you would get uh, for every unit sold, you would get ten cents. So if we deal with ten cents. Um, if you sold a million records, you got a hundred thousand um, dollars minus all the money they fronted you. The, the, the tricky math comes in this. This is what's really bad. It's bad enough that they only give you 10 cents, right? But if they, when they shoot your video and everything, that, that's all advances. So your advance is paid back. You have to pay your advance back. But you're paying the advance back at 10 cents. So if they advance you $100,000 and you sell a million records, you're even. You're at zero. The label, the label, if they sold a million records, they had four million, five million dollars. They made five million dollars. You had zero. And that's only if they gave you a hundred thousand. Because you're paying it back ten cents at a time. The formula um, 
should be, and, and, and there's arguments for why that won't work, but the formula should be that when you recoup, um, meaning the label has just made their $100,000 back. Um, at that point, you should have a better deal, but you don't. So if you sold, if you sold 5 million records, if you sold 5 million records, first of all, uh, the label pays for your posters. There's no way that you could do all the accounting because the label, you got to be able to count the CDs, prove how many they sold, which they're going to tell you a number, but then they're going to charge you for everything. They're going to charge you for the hotel rooms that I had. You know, all their employees spend money in your name. So unless you sell millions of records, you're going to be in trouble. So what, what most artists did was they relied on their show money to make money. That's why the 360 came because you got guys like Puffy and, and, and I don't know, call them Russell Simmons that started Fat Farm and they started making money in other areas. They were taking their, their money and their, well, their fame and turning it to money in other areas. And people didn't like that. So they said, we need to get a piece of that money. And then they started taking part of their show money. See, back then, you could just keep all your show money. So, so what did you not make money off a of record? You know, I'm getting $10,000 a week doing shows or $10,000 a night doing shows. I can do shows Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Shoot, I'm making $40,000, you know, just with a single out. You know, I'm talking from clubs. Then when you move to bigger venues, you're getting 100000 You know, if you Beyonce, you're getting millions of dollars, you know, for one performance. So... You could eat off that money, but now you're not. If you're getting a million, you're not getting but 300,000 because you, you don't have but a third of that because it's a 360 deal. So they got a part of all your income. So it's, it, it's never in the favor of the artist because again, to the label's defense, they have to put up all the money and then you know they're wrong more times than they're right. I mean, I, I spent a million dollars on an artist. I spent a million dollars on an artist and don't have a hit record, so. You know, um, that, that actually should be my story. It should be the Antoinique Project, because I spent a million dollars. But that million dollars was the biggest education I got in the music business. That, that to me was like going to university. Like, I spent a million dollars um, and found out that wasn't a lot of money in the music business. So when it comes to artist signing, rather than artists now go independent or still sign under a record deal? Well, it depends on the artist because... Oh, well, well, let, me, let me reiterate my question. What do you think, your personal opinion, would be better to go independent or sign under, sign under a record label? Well, I would always push for independence. I mean, that's that because until we become independent, we're going to have problems. So I would always push for independence. But... But um, the s some artists are better served with having a job, like um, because they need somebody to tell them to do what they need to do. You know, everybody can't make it as an independent. You know, they're all they are true worker bees, and even in even in the artistic arena there are worker bees that need somebody to do all that for them because they don't want to do that not because they can't they just would rather not first they don't care about money like that like that the the the, the biggest challenge that i see us having also is that a lot of times we don't care about money like i think i could be a lot further in life if i loved money but i don't you know i love to spend money um I jokingly tell people, my kids, if I hit the lottery for 291 million, y'all better get yours now, cause I'm gonna attempt to spend it all, and won't you know? Don't be looking at me on the news going, he spent 291 million. I can't. Yep, sure did. Did it out here playing the lottery again because it's just money. I'm trying to have fun and enjoy it. I don't. What I don't want to do. See, I'd prefer to die broke than die with 291 million dollars in the bank. 
I want I want to die owing y'all so I can say ah oh, I left one one up I owe everybody you know and that's what I'll have I'm a videotape myself remember to play this man I left I owe all y'all. <laughs> so um, let's see let's see I remember you told us a story about um, they tried to make you eat a cookie or something right? Yes. Mind speaking yeah. that? Yeah. So I had a meeting with with with. Um, some very powerful attorneys, Joel Katz and them, and they just, they wanted me to eat a cookie and I didn't want to eat a cookie. And I, I often say that that's, that's very symbolic of the music business. They try to put you in a situation where you will do something that you will not ordinarily do. Like for me, if, if, if I'm a vegan and you're trying to get me to eat meat, I'm selling out like in order to do the deal if you want me to christen this deal with me eating a piece of steak then I sold out because that's not what I would normally do to me a person is a sellout when they do something that they would not normally do now if I would eat that steak for free then I have not sold out and I don't think it's necessarily anything wrong with you selling out if that's what you are like I just think you need to own it like if you look and say they had me put on a pink t-shirt and you know I told them no I don't wear pink and they said look we'll give you a million dollars okay then I put it on I sold out I went against what I went and then all my homies would look at me and go I can't believe you put on that pink t-shirt. I say, I weighed the, the, the cost of how long it was gonna take me to make another million dollars. And I figured if I could put that t-shirt on and get a million dollars, it was worth it to me. So everybody is going to have a crossroads in their life, I think, where you're asked the question where your moral beliefs and your financial beliefs intersect and you have to decide which one you gonna roll with, you know? And man, woman, and child gotta make that choice for themselves. I, my only thing is when you make that choice, you should be man enough, woman enough to stand on that. Like if, if getting ahead was cause I wore a pink shirt, then I should say it, you know? I, I wouldn't say anything other than it was the money. Let's use a kilt. So we did my little Ancestry.com, um, 7% uh, from Scotland. Mm -hmm. My sister just went over there because my nephew played for Northwest and they played Nebraska in Ireland. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I told her to bring me back a kilt, right? Because I said, only thing, if I ever wear a skirt, it's going to be a kilt, right? And then I said, and it has to come from Ireland. So my wife forbid her to bring one back. Point is... If I won't wear a kilt, then for no amount of money should I wear a kilt. But then if I take the money to wear the kilt, I should just say that. You know what I'm saying? Not like, oh, I wore the kilt because I'm 7% Irish. No, you didn't wear the kilt because you were 7% Irish. You wore the kilt because they offered you 15 million. Because I think we need to give true examples to the youth. Because I could defend that. I mean, I don't wear dresses, but if somebody was gonna give me $100 million to wear a dress, and I'm really about the community, then I'm taking one for the community. If I take the $100 million and then give it to the community. So I think where we have the problem is, a lot of us don't come back and, and build the school, build the tech center. Uh, give the example, they leave. Like, it doesn't, I was going to pull my son out of Petersburg schools because they were bad. And I had figured out a way that I could get him to go to Ettrick, to um, the school right, right over there. Well, I could do it legally. He could live in Petersburg and I could bring him to that school. But through doing the research, they were going to remove my tax dollars. So let's say that it costs $40,000 for a student. I don't, I'm making this up. But whatever that number is, the state was gonna move that money over to Ettrick. And that didn't serve 
the community. Because if we all move out, right, if we all leave our hoods, then what happens is the neighborhood's property value goes down then they can't have a tax base. So then we don't have good schools. We don't have good schools only because we don't live there. If we all rush and upgrade our property in Petersburg and our property tax goes up, our schools will get better. And that's, we, we get the money and then run to short pump. You know, run to Northern Virginia. Run to anywhere but where we're at, where our money is needed. Like our money is needed Petersburg is 88% African-American. Right. Um, everybody should move to Petersburg. You know what I'm saying? Like Oprah and all them, come on, move to Petersburg because our tax base will go up. And not, not necessarily Petersburg, but the Petersburg of their uh, city. You know what I'm saying? Like, why? It's crazy you say that because I remember, well, last year I did a like canvassing for the Democratic Party right. in Petersburg. And I was surprised at how many black people really lived down here. Like, it was completely just black people. Well, Petersburg, the reason I often say everybody should move to Petersburg because Petersburg had the largest concentration of land-owning black people uh, before the Civil War. So we was free blacks in Petersburg owning property. Coker Spot used to be released to sell slaves. Yes. So just based on that history alone, we should be there trying to big up that community. But when I say our Petersburg, it's any city. If, if, if I'm LeBron James, right, or Michael Jordan or Drake, you know, why would I move to suburbia? Because as soon as I move to suburbia, what happens is the city needs me to buy a house. They need me to buy a block, tear down the stuff and build my mansion on that block because then they can charge me taxes and they can encourage other people to come there. If we move, if we move, then again, the same situation exists. The people who have the best example are the drug dealers and the riffraff. Our, um, we need examples of doctors and lawyers and Indian chiefs. You know, that's, that's what we need in our community. And we have to, to stay in our community. Okay. Um. You now run 1203 Promotions, is that correct? 1203 Entertainment. Entertainment, sorry. How is that better for you, and is it any different than your time working for Warner Brothers and Ariston? Um, I learned a lot. That's an independent label. It's a country music label. Um, since high school, it's the um, most concentrated moment I had uh, around white people. Um, when I ran the country music label, the majority of my time is spent uh, talking to white people. Um, I typically, in hip hop, you know, the majority of the people I talked to were black. Um, when you're in country, the majority of the people you talk to are white. So, you know, the people I'm going to dinner with, the people I'm hanging out with are all country folk. So it's the same though. The, it's the same principle. You're trying to get a record played. Um, you go into the same places. You go into clubs only instead of going to hip hop clubs, you go into country bars. You know, um, instead of going to hip hop radio stations, you go into country radio stations. Um, and in a lot of cases, they're in the same building when you're talking about the way radio is now. Radio is nothing but corporate America. I mean, we really have a couple of radio stations, iHeart, Radio One, Intercom, you know, but iHeart and Radio One are probably the two biggest right. when it comes to radio. So you're going to get the majority of your uh, impressions is going to come from five companies. Um, so uh, uh, a young man, I was at a party, and a young man sat in my lap. Um, it was very surprising. Uh, I stood up and, and, and dropped Buddy on the floor. And the, the reason that's interesting is because um, I was watching the guy from um, 
what about Chris? I can't, you know, the muscle dude who's always. Terry Yes. Uh, so he was, um, he was fondled. Ted Cruz was, was allegedly fondled. Um, and I remember um, talking to my wife about it because uh, 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 I guess if I remember the story correctly, his wife didn't want him to, you know, blow up the spot because he had some opportunities. And when I look back on it now, a person sitting in my lap is almost like me being fondled. Um, except not, because I wasn't fondled. I mean, he just sat in my lap. It, it, um, but to me, it also was the same sort of situation because I think that's them pushing the envelope to see how you're going to react in certain situations. That's, that's the weirdness about Holly Weird. Um, they put you in these situations that, um, you know, how many times do you think that ever happened to me again? Never. Like, you think that ever happened on the East Coast? Like, I've been in what people would consider to be gay clubs and nobody never did that to me. I mean, sit in your lap, really? Like, that, it, that in itself, to me, was just a test of, of my reaction and, what I, and how I was gonna react. So, well, everything Hollywood, I'm, I'm so happy you said that because I feel the same way about Hollywood. But what are your thoughts on the Illuminati or conspiracies about the Illuminati? Well, I go back and forth. Um, and I, 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 I've been hearing them my entire career. Um, like, they said Queen Latifah was involved. I mean, they used to say, which is sad, they would say that her brother was her closest and they say she sacrificed her brother. Like, that to me, when people start saying that, part of me believes that it definitely exists. But then part of me says, is, is offended because it's almost like we can't ever do anything without cheating. Like, that's like saying, the only way Beyonce got to the top was she joined the Illuminati. Now people say that, you know, they, they, they have those conversations. But is she talented at all? So then did she have to join the Illuminati? Like it becomes, and that's why they're conspiracy theories, I think, because it just keeps people talking. I mean, I could think of, of, of several. I used to jokingly say, if, if we want to say there was a conspiracy, then I would go with this one. I would go with um, Jay-Z had Biggie killed. Not Puff. They used to say Puff. But I would say Jay-Z because they both was from Brooklyn. Truly, if you follow it and you say who made the most money out of this situation, uh, Jay-Z, did. Puff got the limelight, but only for a split second. The limelight was really shined on Jay-Z. Ever since Biggie got out the way, Jay-Z has skyrocketed to the top. Like he jumped into place, like he became next in line. And, and he became a billionaire. And he was chosen, you know, by who we would consider to be the Illuminati. So they let him in. So if there was going to be someone, if we want to have a conspiracy theory, we should stop in with the theory saying it was Puffy or, um, um, or Suge Knight and Puffy, the Illuminati would be much bigger than that. Um, so the research, if we just want to go by the research, the Illuminati was started in 1776. It started at the same time the United States did. It would be a subculture from the Masons. Um, it would be powerful individuals that are controlling the rest of us, the 2% that are controlling the rest of the world. Do I think that exists? Absolutely. Do I think we're all being controlled by them, force-fed? Absolutely. Do I think they run around and worry about the day-to-day -day lives of individuals? Probably not. Um, do I believe the Bilderbergs meet every year and, and plot on, on uh, population control? Absolutely. Do I think they plot on how to keep us down? Absolutely. Um, but again, do I think they worry about what records we put out? I think they do to the extent that we could put out much better music. And so now the people that are in control, whatever faction they are, um, they are doing 
causing more harm to us. But again, that's also on us. See, I grew up at a time where um, I, I never, I never blame. I blamed the white man for everything, but blamed him for nothing as it related to me. So as the world was in general, I blamed him for all those problems, but it was never gonna prevent me from getting where I wanted to go. Um, it was never gonna hold me back. There was not gonna be a situation where they were gonna control me or stop me from doing anything. Then this Illuminati thing came, and you know, it, it started when a lot of us started making, I mean, like I heard it first with Queen Latifah back in the day. It started with Queen Latifah and then um, Will Smith, and these people had long promising careers, so you could, you could question whether or not it really exists, and if it is, did they really buy into it? But then I get mad because I know how talented we are, and I know how much work. I mean, I heard Kevin Gates say one day, um, he wished there was a way he could have sold. He said he had to work too hard. You know, he would have surely sold. He said, I would have sold it and told everybody I, I joined because it would have made my life easier. Um, I don't think um, if there was one, they would let a lot of us in. I, I thought the same thing. I think. Um, I feel like it's like a blood tie thing. Yeah, like, I, don't you know? think, I don't think they would let. I, my, my personal theory was. Like the Illuminati and like the music industry is kind of just like a publicity thing. Like it's not really the real Illuminati. Um, like what I kind of kind of uh, throwing what I believe in. I think it's the Freemasons. Um, and well, if you study the history, the Masons, the Illuminati literally started in 1776. You can look it up. It's a it's a legitimate organization. They started in 1776. Um, them and the Masons, here's where the trickery comes in. They're both supposed to be light bearers, okay? So when I think about the Illuminati, the reason I never fear them, let me just tell y'all why I don't fear them, because I am a light bearer, okay? The knowledge that I possess far outweighs the knowledge they possess. The God in me, the, the illumination that's lit in me will blind them. So I don't fear them. Um, I don't also believe that I need to sell my soul. Like if we're talking about a real life blood contract where somebody wants me to um, sacrifice a family member, someone I love, or something I love, I'm not for that. I wouldn't do that at, at, at no cost and for no price. And I don't believe, and this could be my naivete, I don't believe we as a people would do that. I think it's some scandalous ones of us out there that, that may do it, but then they would have regrets. I don't think that um, there is a great portion of us that would enter into an organization that required us to sacrifice somebody we loved and live with that. Right? So we're gonna say that Queen Latifah is in the Illuminati and she could still, like she ain't, strung out on drugs, crazy, she just sacrificed her brother and she good with that? I, I don't think that she is that type of person. I don't think that the people that we are accused of these things are of that character. Do I think that some of us have done some scandalous things to get ahead? Absolutely. Do I think it was accredited to an Illuminati? Absolutely. I think if, um, if, if if Puff signed Biggie to a scandalous contract, and I guess there's argument that he did, then would we say he's in the Illuminati? Because that's who the Illuminati would be. He would be a record exec at that time that was on the inside to sign somebody that came up dead, you know, and then he benefited. So um, does that make him a member? And then if he's a member, you know, they say Michael Jackson and Prince. So now that's why none of them got to die normal lives. They say Whitney Houston. That's why she didn't get to die a normal life. How about some corporations were going to have to pay them lots of money and they didn't want to? So what they did was they got them knocked off. And rather than just kill them and it trace back to them, they start these conspiracy theories. Because again, if we're talking about the 1%, any news story that they want to put out is the story. You know, they could have me uh, a pedophile tomorrow. You know, they could, they could do that, like, for real, 
we have no idea to me what's true and what's not true. Um, they told us we went to the moon. I'd never believe that. <laughs> See, so if we don't believe they went to the moon, right? If we don't believe America went to the moon, then we can't believe anything. Because, I mean, they have, they created a whole organization, NASA, that says we went to the moon. They did all that they had to do, and then they put it out for 50-something years now. And if that never happened, then our media, like, so they never went to the moon, and we don't have a newspaper reporter that could definitively prove that we never went to the moon. Like, that means that we are, we as the sheep, will always be led because we, we, if we don't believe that then, and I don't believe that, and if it turns out that they didn't, then all of America like is not real. We're living really in the matrix. Well, Mr. Harrison, it's been a pleasure having you here. This has been a good interview. Extreme pleasure having you here. Uh, I believe you work at VCU now, right? You're a professor there? I teach two classes at VCU, yes. Uh, I teach um, the history of hip hop, and then um, next semester I'll be teaching uh, between the lines, which is a, a, a we'll be looking at um, the lyrics that shape the foundation of hip hop. Pleasure to be here. Thank you guys.